Good morning. Well, this morning we're going to get back into our series in the book of Revelation after taking a short break for the Good Friday and Easter season. And my part as we've been going through Revelation is been to highlight the seven letters that Jesus writes to the seven churches at the beginning of the book. And the number seven there kind of picturing for us the completeness or universality of Jesus' church. It helps us understand that these messages should be considered important and significant for the whole church, the universal church, as we find her in every age and every place. But these letters also remind us of something else. That every church has problems. Every church has struggles and deficiencies. And even the favorite pastime of church hopping that some Christians enjoy always means hopping from one imperfect church to another one. And these letters are helpful reminders that every church is still in desperate need of her Savior. This morning, even though we're going to zero in on one church, the church at Thyatira, we're going to do so in order to compare her to two of her sisters. And my hope is that as we take a look at these three sister churches side by side, we'll get a better picture of who we are and what our needs are and how Jesus meets those needs with himself. This is the good news of Jesus who ministers to us with truth and love and who now powerfully enables us to do the same. And we find him in his letter to the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, Verses 18 through 29, it's printed for you on your bulletin on page 6. And to the angel of the church and Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, do not hold this teaching. You have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, we do pray once again 
that by your Spirit you open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to grasp the meaning of your Word and to grasp the depth, the wideness, the fullness of the love of Christ. Father, would you pour out truth, the truth of your gospel and the love of your gospel into our hearts this morning. Wash away our idols. Wash away our worldliness. And let us find the joy that comes from the tr- being true worshipers. True worshipers of you, Father, and your Son, and the Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Can you imagine not only being a top-ranked sports professional in the world, but also knowing that your most difficult competition time and again is going to come from your sibling? The, sibling, the siblings that I'm thinking of, they, they have faced off against each other 27 times in professional-level competition. Venus Williams holds 49 titles as a professional women's tennis player. And her sister Serena, who is only younger than she is by one year, holds 69 titles. And they've both known what it's like to be ranked number one in the world in their sport. They both have known what that's like. The last time they went head-to-head was this last September in the U.S. Open quarterfinals which Serena won. And in fact, out of the 27 times that they've met in professional competition, many of them for Grand Slam finals, Serena has won 16 times and Venus has won 11 times. They're fairly well evenly matched. I mean, it's almost as heated as when my brothers and I and Cameron Mullins come together for a night of Lord of the Rings-themed board gaming. Every dice roll sounds like thunder. You can cut the tension with a knife. Or the the Dark Lord Sauron's battle mace, whichever you have near you. But the letters to the churches and the New Testament, including the ones that we find here in Revelation, they're not meant to inspire sibling rivalry. Jesus, Jesus isn't ranking these churches for reward, and he's not ranking them for merit, and he's definitely not ranking them for his love. Instead, this this kind of full panoramic view that we get of the church and the New Testament and in Revelation, it helps us to see our struggles. It helps us to see our idols, our obstacles in following Jesus, and to know that these things are not new to us. And neither is Jesus' remedy for these things. So this morning we're going to consider three different sister churches side by side. Not so that we can rank them. But as a way of looking at a mirror. A way of looking at ourselves. The first sister church is actually one that we've already met in Revelation. and talked about it months ago. She was the first one to receive a letter from Jesus. The church at Ephesus. And we might quickly remember that Ephesus is commended by Jesus for her works of patient endurance 
living in a culture that hates her. And she's particularly praised for her sound, strong doctrine. Ephesus isn't a place where false teachers are ever able to get much of a foothold because the church just doesn't have any tolerance for heresy. And Jesus commends Ephesus for these things. But then he goes on to get very serious with the Ephesians. In fact, Jesus gives Laodicea, the last church of the seven in Revelation, and then Ephesus, the first. He gives these two churches the strongest warnings out of the seven. He threatens to remove Ephesus' lampstand, which is a symbol of her very existence as a light bearer, a, a gospel bearer to the world. Jesus threatens to close the doors of the Ephesian church. Why? Why would he do that? And the reason is because she had lost her first love, as he says. She had become stale. She had become hard in her relationship to Jesus and hard in her love towards her neighbor. Her most recent behavior of doctrine protecting, as important as it was, was worse than the works that she had done at first. Because at first, she was a church that was deeply in love with Christ and the people Christ had given her to minister to. But her attitude towards the culture had become one of complete disengagement and insulation and protectionism and isolationism. She'd become the epitome of the holy huddle. What we learn from our Ephesian sister is that you can lose your first love. You can lose your love for Christ and your love for others, which always go hand in hand, by approaching doctrine wrongly. You can approach good doctrine wrongly. We don't love doctrine in order to be right, simply. To pat ourselves on the back for having the answers when others don't. We don't love doctrine to win friendly arguments at church potlucks. To have the most insightful comments at Bible study. We don't fill our minds with doctrinal knowledge because it somehow makes up for the relationship with Jesus that we're not experiencing through prayer. Jesus doesn't think that filling our minds up with doctrinally correct information is a good substitute for intimate prayer with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit or a good substitute for ministering to others. We don't love doctrine in order to be right. We believe right doctrine in order to love. And the sister church at Ephesus had forgotten this. The church at Ephesus had fallen into a loveless legalism. Because any church without the love of the Holy Spirit becomes legalistic, no matter how good their doctrine is. Because what tends to happen is that right doctrine and precise doctrine becomes the new law. It becomes the new standard of merit by which others are measured and graded and accepted when there's no love. Doctrine makes a wonderful and unparalleled 
servant, but it is a poor master. It is designed to serve love, and the moment it stops serving love is the moment that it starts serving our legalism and our judgmentalism. And this is our sister at Ephesus, a church of doctrinal strength, but loveless legalism. But the church in our passage before us this morning, the sister at Thyatira, appears to have different strengths and a different set of problems. As Jesus usually does in these letters, he mentions her strong points first before confronting her. And so she's approved for her strong public witness and love for others. She's a church that evidently is known in her community. She's been very successful at leaving a footprint. She's a church known for being a loving community, full of faith, socially active with works of mercy and service that are evident to those around her. Not only this, but she's actually growing in these ways because her more recent works exceed her first works, Jesus says. She's growing in sanctification in these ways. She's commended for that. She cares about the pagan culture around her and she seeks to engage that culture, to identify with that culture, to enter into the sufferings and the joys and the common graces and blessings to be found in that culture. In other words, the church at Thyatira, in these ways at least, is opposite of her sister at Ephesus. She's strong in ways that the church at Ephesus is not. But she's also weak in ways that her sister is strong. Her desire and willingness to identify with her surrounding culture out of a heart of love and a heart of service has also made her susceptible to being undermined in her doctrinal purity. The false teaching that had entered the church, it it seems to be almost identical to the false teaching that we encountered in Jesus' letter to Pergamum, which is the letter right before this one. Jesus had told that church that they had bought into the teachings of Balaam, who was an infamous Old Testament false prophet that had tempted the Israelites into idolatry, But here in Thyatira, Jesus references another infamous false teacher, the evil queen Jezebel. The evil queen Jezebel who had married the Israelite king Ahab in the book of 1 Kings. And Jezebel, after marrying Ahab, then persuaded Ahab to worship the false gods of the Canaanites, the Baal gods, and then to lead all of the people of Israel into kind of a national corporate idolatry. As Tyler mentioned a few minutes ago in his prayer, we have a lot of babies being born into our congregation this year. It's somewhere around 12 or 13 maybe. It's quite a few kids being born into our community this year. It's exciting in 2016 at New St. Peter's. And I know some of the names that some of you parents have chosen for your kids But I have never, ever, ever, ever known parents, Christian or not, to name their daughter Jezebel. Oh, look, there's little Jezzy Berger taking her first steps. Right? So this is probably not her real name, 
Jezebel is probably not the real name of a real person at Thyatira, most likely. In fact, we don't actually even know for sure that Jezebel refers to a literal individual woman who was at the center of the false teaching at Thyatira, or if Jezebel is just kind of a symbol Jesus is using to refer to a group of false teachers who are acting the same way Jezebel did in the Old Testament. We just don't know for sure. But most of the early fathers and most contemporary scholars agree that sexual immorality mentioned in this passage is a metaphor for spiritual adultery. It's a common metaphor used throughout the Bible to refer to spiritual adultery, which is idolatry. In other words, the false teachers or the, fa- the primary false prophetess, if it's a real, literal, individual personality at Thyatira, was convincing many in the church to mix their Christianity with pagan idol rituals. And I've mentioned this before when talking about other churches in Revelation, but recall for me just, just for a second that the, the cultural context that these Christians found themselves in So the vast majority of the working class in Asia Minor during this time, they belonged to a trade guild. And a trade guild was an organization that functioned kind of like a mix between a modern union and a quality control bureau and a corporate headquarters. They decided, essentially, all economic policy related to pricing for goods, and spheres of competition, and who was able to be part of the membership of the guild. And every guild was attached to at least one, and sometimes many, patron Roman deities, false gods. And at their regular office parties, if you want to call them that, to remain a member of the guild, you are required to swear allegiance and to offer sacrifice to one of these patron gods. And failure to do so could cost you your job at best and sometimes could get you charged with treason at worst. And Jezebel and her followers were teaching the Thyatiran Christians that it was okay to compromise that it was very acceptable, it was very practical to hold fast to their Christian beliefs and to also pay token service at these ritual ceremonies by eating the meat sacrificed to the idols, which was part of the pagan worship services. For Jezebel and her followers, it was a way of staying relevant. It was a way of keeping a strong presence in the culture instead of retreating from it. It was a way of showing the culture that you're not weird, you're not scary just because you're a Christian. In fact, your relationship to Jesus hasn't made you more self-righteous and legalistic and brittle like those Ephesian Christians, thank goodness. It has made you more tolerant, more accepting, more open-minded. So show them, Jezebel would say, 
Show them how Jesus has rescued you from your narrow-mindedness and angry dogmatism. Show them love, she would say, by participating with them in something that matters so much to them. And it seems that this teaching had gained quite a foothold because Jesus says in verse 21 that he had already provided some time for her to repent. This teaching had been spreading for a while. She had obviously gained a following among the Christians there. They're the ones that are called those committing adultery with her in verse 22 and those called her children in verse 23. As is sometimes the case with churches that are so successful in identifying with the culture in good ways and for good reasons, Thyatira had compromised one of the most central ingredients to effectively engaging the culture as the church. She had compromised the truth itself. A few weeks ago, we had the blessing of having Chris Morrison... He's the Reformed University Fellowship Director for International Students at SMU. He came and preached to us here in our service. And Chris reminded us of Jesus' call that we should be like salt in the community. Salt, which was and actually still is used to preserve meat and other foods from spoiling. Jesus says that we are salt in the world. In Ephesus, our first sister had lost her saltiness, not by denying truth, but by failing to actually believe it or follow it. Because if Ephesus had, they would have been people of immense love. And they weren't. You can't be salt in your community. You can't maintain a public witness to the culture or even a Christ-centered private witness to the rest of the church and your family without God's love poured into your heart for them. But here, in our passage this morning, Thyatira, Jesus is saying that they were in danger of losing their saltiness too. But they were losing their saltiness by committing spiritual adultery. Jesus is accusing the church at Thyatira of sneaking off and having a spiritual affair Behind his back. He's telling them that there are some areas of your life, some spheres where tolerance has absolutely no place. And just like a husband should never tolerate another man to be in a relationship with his wife, so Jesus won't tolerate another lover and the life of his bride. And he calls the church at Thyatira and the church of Dallas to feel the same way. Jesus is saying that when we go so far and identifying with the culture that we participate with her in her sins and begin to deny the truth of the teachings of Jesus, we also lose our saltiness. The sister at Ephesus had defined faithfulness as standing strong in truth and doctrine against the culture. And they had ended up with loveless legalism. The sister at Thyatira, she had defined faithfulness as identifying with the culture, loving it, participating with it, even in its sins, whether left-wing sins or right-wing sins. 
And they had ended up with a powerless license. A license to be like the culture, but it came with the price tag of losing all the power to change it or transform it. Because Jesus and his life-transforming truth had been thrown overboard and neglected. Cast aside. But there's a third sister. Another church for us to look at. And she's not perfect because that church doesn't exist. But she gives us a better picture of faithfulness than Ephesus or Thyatira. It's another church that also received a letter from the Apostle John, but not in Revelation. It's the letter that Tyler read for us a little bit earlier from the book of 2 John. She's called, in verse 1, the elect lady and her children, which is a metaphor for a group of Christians who know God and who are loved by him because he chose to give them grace by showing them who Jesus is and what he's done. It's a church whom John loves in truth. In verse 1. Many of the Christians are commended by John for walking in the truth. In verse 4. But the church is encouraged to love one another in verses 5 and 6. And John reminds them that by loving one another, they will be fulfilling all the commandments God has ever given But then the letter ends again on the note of truth once again. The church is cautioned to not listen to the many deceivers, the many Jezebels in their midst who are denying that Jesus came in the flesh, who deny Jesus' humanity, who think that it's not important to abide, to make a home in Jesus' teaching, even though it's exclusive. John warns that such people who deny the Son will not have any part with God the Father in verse 9. And so what we see in this third sister church, and we don't actually know where the church of 2 John was located, but what we see is a community that defines faithfulness as truth and love. Both of these terms, both truth and love, finding their ultimate meaning in the person of Jesus himself. Jesus, who is truth itself because he is God the Son, he's fully divine. He's the one who gives beginning to all of reality. And so therefore, he alone is reliable to tell us what's going on with all of reality. Jesus, who is love itself because he is God, but also because he proved this love to us by not just staying God, but by adding to his godness our frail and broken humanity. By becoming a servant. By becoming a persecuted and even a martyred servant in order to cleanse us from our own sins. His very human blood for sin. And so this third sister church understood that feelings of love and acts of kindness aren't enough to be a faithful witness. 
but neither is being doctrinally sound and rigidly isolationist. Instead, it is holding to the truth of the gospel and believing this truth that produces genuine and powerful love. Love without truth is powerless and it dissolves into people-pleasing and a willingness to become whatever others want you to be. And truth without love becomes a club that's used to abuse for the purpose of self-protection and power-grabbing. One without the other, truth without love, or love without truth, always ends in some form of selfishness. Ephesus had fallen into loveless legalism and Thyatira into powerless license. But the church of Second John was practicing powerful love, real love, wedded to truth. And so as the author of truth and love, Jesus does for Thyatira a very loving thing. He gives her a warning and he gives her a call. He warns her already by using the imagery of Jezebel and sexual immorality. Jesus is preparing for us the vision of the great prostitute in Revelation chapter 17 and 18, which Colin preached a few weeks back. The great prostitute in those passages, as Colin told us, represents the motives that we have for believing false teaching. Reasons we would have for believing it. Wealth, social status, impressing others in our social circles. The prostitute represents coziness with the world in every sense. Jezebel calling herself a prophetess in verse 20. That should make us think of the beast that's going to come out of the sea in Revelation chapter 13, which represents worldwide false teaching. And then Jesus refers to this doctrine at Thyatira as the deep things of Satan in verse 24. And so when you take all of that together, Jesus is warning and pleading with his church. He's telling her, look, The dragon, he's already at work among you. His agents, the great prostitute and the beast from the sea, they wish to conquer you, little church. And so you must conquer them through me. And he warns them of what will happen if they don't. Jezebel and her children are going to suffer consequences that also sound like some of the plagues mentioned later in the book. Sickness, great tribulation, and death. The point is, Jezebel and her followers are well on their way to proving that they're not Jesus' disciples at all. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And the worst thing that could happen to them or anyone would be for Jesus to return and to judge them according to their works. That's an ominous phrase that shows up in verse 23. But it calls forth again another scene later in Revelation, this time from Revelation 20, where all of humanity stands before 
the great white throne where God the Almighty is sitting on that throne and all of them are judged according to what they have done. As verse 13 from chapter 20 reads. But this letter to the Thyatirans, it's not just a warning and it's not just a threat. It's a call. And it's a call that brings all hope, that brings all security and assurance and confidence and boldness with it. Because the call in verse 26 is to conquer by keeping not your own works, but Jesus' works. Verse 26. Jesus' works. The one who has eyes of flames like fire, because he sees all things and knows all things. The, the one whose paths and way of life is so pure and, her, and, and, and holy that his feet are like burnished bronze. This Jesus is ready to make us fellow rulers, he says at the end of this letter. Fellow heirs of his kingdom to share in his authority over all the nations. The same authority given to him by the Father. And he's ready to do this for those who keep his works. Not theirs, his. And if we think for a moment that keeping Jesus' works is a matter of trying harder, of readjusting our lives, of throwing away bad habits of learning better doctrine, of going to more Bible studies, or volunteering for more mercy ministry, then we still don't get the gospel very well. Because Jesus' works only become your works the same way that Jesus' authority to rule will become your authority. It's a gift. It's a gift. You will not earn your place of sharing in Jesus' authority. And you will not earn his works. It's a gift. They only become yours by grace. Jesus promises his record of perfect obedience to you as a gift received by faith. And then he promises to continue to work in you and through you his works of truth and love, powerful love. To make you someone who holds on to his truth no matter what it costs you. And to also make you someone who has his love pumping in your heart for others. To feel what he feels and desires for others. To give you of that love. And all of these things are gifts from him because they can't be obtained any other way. And that is fantastic news. So believe it. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.